welcome to Cancer Conversations. I'm your host, Erica Matthews. I am a wife, mom, and wellness coach. I understand the trauma of getting a cancer diagnosis and the intense battle a person instantly steps into. This podcast is all about learning how to overcome adversity and how activating faith plays a key role in the outcomes we want to have. Each week, I will be bringing you education and inspiration, as well as interviews with other fellow warriors. Get ready to be empowered in your faith, mindset, and your health. Now, let's get into today's episode. All right. Well, we are here with another episode of Cancer Conversations, and I'm so excited for my guest today, Dr. Jen Simmons, and I'm going to just share a little bit about her. First, before we have her come on, Dr. Jen Simmons started her professional career as Philadelphia's first fellowship-trained breast surgeon. And after spending 17 years as Philadelphia's top breast surgeon, her own illness led her to discover functional medicine. So enamored with the concept of creating health rather than killing the disease, she left traditional medicine and her esteemed surgical position And in 2019, she founded Real Health MD with the mission to help women anywhere along the breast cancer journey to truly heal. So Jen, I'm so excited (laughs) to hear about this. That's how it happens, right? We get our own diagnosis and it it literally takes us into a whole new path, a whole new world. So yeah, yeah. well, welcome. We all get our messages, right? Right. We all get our messages. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I didn't see mine coming. Most people don't see theirs coming. I am deeply grounded, deeply rooted in the world of breast cancer. I come from a breast cancer family. I actually don't remember a time in my life where I didn't know about breast cancer. And growing up, I had a first cousin. She was my hero. Her name was Linda Creed. She was a singer-songwriter in the 1970s and 1980s. She wrote all the music for the spinners and the stylistics. I am both dating myself and geographically (laughs) pegging myself. She was the queen of Motown sound in Philadelphia. She was beautiful, brilliant, larger than life. She wrote 54 hits in all. And her most famous song was The Greatest Love of All. Mm. So she wrote that song in 1977 as the title track to the movie, The Greatest, starring Muhammad Ali, but it really received its acclaim in March of 1986 when Whitney Houston would release that song to the world. And at that time, it's been 14 weeks at the top of the charts. Only Linda would never know. Linda died of metastatic and her life and ultimately her death gave birth to my life's purpose. Mm. So I did the only thing I knew how to do. I became a doctor. I became a surgeon. I became the first fellowship trained breast surgeon in Philadelphia. I became the first oncoplastic breast surgeon in Philadelphia. And I did that really well for a really long time. And about 15 years into my career, when I was at the top of my game. I really thought that I was making a fundamental difference in the world of breast cancer. And I'm a surgeon and running the cancer program for my hospital and a wife and a mother and a stepmother and an athlete and a philanthropist. And I have all these balls in the air. And I think I'm an expert juggler until the day that they all came crashing down for me. And I went from being probably one of the most high-functioning people you ever met to basically not being able to walk across a room because I didn't have the breath in my body. Mm. And I had three days of really intensive workup because when you're the big money maker for your hospital, they make sure that you're worked up quickly. Mm. And at the end of that three days, I am sitting in the office of my friend and colleague and physician. And he tells me that I need surgery and chemo radiation and I'm going to be on lifelong medication. And despite the fact that I know that these are things that I do all day, every day, without hesitation or reservation, when the words are coming at you, it's a whole different experience. Mm -hmm. And I just 
at a sense, call it God, call it higher power, call it whatever you want to call it. Despite the fact that I knew that this was the standard of care, despite the fact that I was deeply steeped in conventional medicine, I knew that this was not the path that I was going to take. Mm. I walked out of the office. My doctor told me I would die of my disease, just like I had told thousands of women before that, that, you know, they ask me what will happen if I don't treat my cancer. And I tell them they're going to die of their cancer. Wow. So, you know, he told me that I was going to die of my disease. And I said, I just know there's something more. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. I did not know, but I knew there was something more. And I went on a journey to find out. And I was fortunate that early on in my journey, took me to a place where I heard Mark Hyman speak. And at the time it was 2017, he was still very, very obscure. I mean, there are still so many people who don't know who he is. Do you know who he is? Yeah. Yep. yeah. So he comes and walks on stage, you know, in lanky self and his toothy grin. And he introduces himself as a functional medicine physician. And at this point, I'm a doctor for 20 years. I say, there's no such thing as a functional medicine physician. What is this quack talking about? Mm. And then I remember that I'm sick and that I'm there for a reason. So I kind of check my ego at the door and I shut up and I listen and thank God I did. Mm. Because within minutes of him speaking, I realized exactly why I got sick. I got sick so that I could be in that room on that day listening to him speak because not only was what he's saying forecasting how I was going to heal, but he was also forecasting how I was going to help millions of women heal because as a surgeon, not only did I not have access on that level to millions of women, But as a surgeon, I wasn't changing the trajectory of their lives. Yes, maybe I was delaying the inevitable, but I wasn't changing the trajectory that they were on. I wasn't changing why they got cancer. I wasn't intervening on any level as Mm. to why they got cancer. I was just removing the cancer and waiting for the body to catch up afterwards. And the body is keeping score. So unless you figure out your why, you're just going to you're just going to meet that message again down the road might not be in the exact form might not be as breast cancer next time maybe it is cardiac disease maybe it's dementia may you know it's a whole host of other things but unless you figure out your why you're going to meet it again unless you hear the message you're going to meet it again And we often, as we walk through life, we get whispers, you know, in retrospect, I had whispers, Mm. we don't listen to whispers. We only listen to the screams. And so I'm on a mission to help people to recognize the whispers Mm. so that we don't have to endure the screams. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So what stage were you when you got diagnosed? I did not have breast cancer. I had Graves disease, which is an autoimmune disease of the thyroid. Okay. That basically what's happening is it's a process called molecular mimicry, where your immune system is triggered by something that to your immune system looks like the thyroid. And the thyroid is the master gland of our metabolism. Mm. So when you attack the thyroid gland and those thyroid cells die, It floods your system with thyroid hormone. And when that happens, your heart beats really fast. You breathe too fast. And if this process is not controlled, people die of heart failure. Mm. They either have a heart attack because their heart is working too hard because there's no feedback loop. Mm -hmm. It's all, you're in overdrive all the time. Or... You're in overdrive all the time and your heart just wears out. It just gives out. So it's treated just like cancer because no one is taking the time to figure out what's going on. And so they say, just remove the thyroid gland. Well, the problem with removing the thyroid gland and then radiating the thyroid gland afterwards 
is that it is the master of our metabolism. So there are major, major, major ramifications to removing the thyroid gland. Mm. And for me, that voice inside of my head said, why would God give me a thyroid gland that I need in order to exist Mm -hmm. only for me to take it out, radiate myself, poison myself, and then have to be on synthetic hormone replacement for the rest of my life or else I can't live. Mm. It didn't make any sense to me. Like I just didn't see how that could possibly be God's plan. And when I thought about it that way, I approached it completely differently. Now, when I met Mark Hyman and he talked about functional medicine and he talked about root cause medicine and, you know, not treating the symptom, which that's all that my doctor was doing. And if I'm being honest, that's all I was doing for people is treating Mm. the symptom because cancer is not the disease. Cancer is the symptom of the disease. Right. And the disease is somewhere five, 10 years back. Yep. Right. That's where the dysfunction lies. Mm-hmm. And that's where we have to look to. We have to look to the dysfunction rather than getting caught up in the tumor, getting caught up in the name and the disease. Right. Like I think if we called it something else, people could be more introspective about it. But they get so invested in the cancer totally that, that they can't see anything else. It's like you can't see the picture when you're in the frame. Yeah, it totally becomes they get well, I'm on my own journey, but people get obsessed with, you know, surviving. And they do chase the symptoms and chase the, you know, the healing modalities. And I am all about, I mean, I'm all about root cause healing, because if you do not solve that problem, it's never going to end. Or you're like, you've just said, you're going to attract a different diagnosis later on. So, I mean, quite frankly, unfortunately, in a very crude way, it's just a never ending game of whack-a-mole, right? Like put this, put this fire out and another one pops out, put this fire out, another one pops out. I mean, that's just what happens if all you're doing is symptom management. Right. Right. And to some extent that is by intention in our current medical system, because our current medical system is built on a platform of illness. Yep. There's no way to get into it unless you get sick. It's not like people are going to their doctor and seeking health. What they're going to their doctor for is disease management. Yes. And doctors don't even really know how to assist you in being healthy, how to advise you in being healthy. It's just not part of their repertoire. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is that we just go from disease to disease to disease because all we're getting along the way is advice on how to manage the symptoms. So, you know, if you take a drug for one symptom, well, that not only is that drug not eliminating the reason why you're having the symptom, but that drug is then creating a second symptom. I mean, there's no better example than as women age, and, you know, it's not so true for men because men don't have the protective, they don't have enough estrogen for it to be cardioprotective, but it's women women, estrogen is very cardioprotective. And as women go through menopause, they lose that cardioprotective mechanism. And so we see the lipids go up and heart disease incidence goes up and that kind of thing. And so this is a very common time where women are put on statins to lower their cholesterol. Well, when you go on a statin, you increase your risk of diabetes by 63%. So now you're on a statin and now you need something to manage your blood sugar and on and on and on. And each thing begets the next. Mm-hmm. And also when you're on a statin and your cholesterol levels drop, now you don't have enough cholesterol to keep the brain healthy. So now you have depression. Now you have brain fog. And these are and there's another drug and another drug and another drug. And it's just this never-ending feed-forward cycle that. Mm-hmm. You can't get off unless you break away from the mm-hmm. system and break away from the cycle. 
Exactly. Oh my gosh, I'm with you 100%. So do you see the system changing? Because I don't. I mean, I feel like it's, I mean, I could go a whole into that, but I don't see it changing. But do you? Well, it's certainly not changing as rapidly as I would like to see it. Uh And the hill that I'm going to die on is the breast cancer screening one. So we are still living in a country where women are told that mammograms save lives. And it is nearly impossible to get a radiologist, let alone an OBGYN or a general practitioner or internal medicine doctor, it is nearly impossible to get them to agree that mammograms actually are harmful and cause cancer. Mm-hmm. And they say, they quote a study that is not even applicable anymore, but there are there is zero evidence that mammograms save lives. Mm. And in fact, when we look at population statistics, we have to screen thousands and thousands of women in order to find that one woman that we might change the trajectory of her life. Meanwhile, we're going to cause more, way more cancers than we will save lives when we mm-hmm. use mammograms to screen. And when we look at the populations of women who screen as compared to those who don't, when they have equal access to care and treatment, there is no survival advantage to screening, none. Mm. The women who don't screen do equally as well as the women who screen. Mm. No matter how many mammograms we do every year, the exact same number of women die of breast cancer. No matter how many mammograms we do every year, the exact same number of women present with aggressive disease We are not doing anything to impact the bottom line. And yet a woman cannot be screened unless she has a mammogram. They Mm -hmm. won't allow it. Insurance won't pay for it. Doctors won't write for it. They won't. And so, you know, I'm on a mission to make sure that women don't use mammogram for screening anymore because it is not helpful and it is harmful. And I think if we called it what it was, people would see it differently and feel differently. Mm-hmm. If we called it a breast x-ray, people would be like, hey, wait, don't x-rays cause cancer? I mean, you can ask physicians if x-rays cause cancer, if radiation causes cancer, and 100% of them will say yes. And then you ask them if mammograms cause cancer, and 100% of them will say no. Mm. And it's so amazing that because we changed the word, because we found a nicer term, Mm. people no longer see it for what it is, the the wolf in sheep's clothing. Totally. Yeah. So why do they push mammograms then? I mean, is it about money? What is it? I mean, they're creating customers. Right. They're creating customers. Mm. Even if they, even if they don't, create breast cancers, which they do. The more mammograms you have in your life, the higher the risk is of you getting breast cancer. But even if they didn't create cancers themselves, they are money generating in themselves because a certain percentage of them, depending on where in the country you're imaged, if you're on the East Coast, it's much worse than if you're on than if you're anywhere else in the country. But on the East Coast, they call back 50% of women for additional views. 50%. 50% of women who go for a mammogram have to then go and have another mammogram for a closer look. Now, in some parts of the country, it's 25%. But even still, even still, if we're calling back 25% of women for additional views, that's money in itself. Mm. And then they ask for an ultrasound and then they ask for an MRI. So suddenly, you're, you know, we're talking about four or $5,000 in reimbursements, mm. right? So there's money in that alone. And 37 million women get screened every year, mm. 37 million. So we're talking big, big, big numbers. Beyond that, a certain percentage of those women who get called back are going to be told that they need a biopsy. Yeah. Even though 75% of the biopsies that are performed for breast 
imaging abnormalities are benign. So mm-hmm. 75% of the women that get biopsied got biopsied for nothing or mm-hmm. no reason. And let me tell you, besides the pain of the biopsy, there is a bell that once you ring that bell, it cannot be unrung. Even if they don't have breast cancer, they now see themselves as high risk. They feel as if they're at high risk Mm -hmm. and that stays with them forever. This is a very high price that women are paying so that the system can make some more money. Wow. Ew. Yeah. It's frightening. And then there are the 40,000 DCIS diagnoses that people get every year. And this is a non-invasive cancer. This has no potential to spread, no potential to be life-threatening. And yet we treat it like invasive cancer. And when you treat DCIS like it's invasive cancer, these women for the rest of their lives have to endure all the side effects of that treatment. And they're not benign. They're not negligible. We are increasing their risk of cardiac disease. We are increasing their risk of osteoporosis. We're increasing their risk of dementia, of depression, of anxiety. This is not nothing. We're interfering with sexual health. I mean, this is not nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet it goes on all day, every day, because it makes a lot of money for the system. And it's really sad. So, you know, when you ask me, are things changing? And I tell you, they're not changing quickly enough, but they are changing. And I was very, very fortunate about a year ago to be introduced to a gentleman named John Clock. So John Clock is his training, his background training is in medical oncology, and he was the head of the cancer center at USC for a number of years. But he's been an inventor since he was like knee high. I think he invented his first thing at seven or eight or something like that. He's just like a tinkerer. And he invented the cardiac score, the calcium cardiac score. He invented the virtual colonoscopy for people who didn't want to undergo the whole colonoscopy thing. And the NIH tapped him on the shoulder and said, we need to solve this breast screening problem because right now MRI is like the definitive screening test for women with dense breasts or a history of a, or, or a history of breast cancer or a BRCA mutation, but MRIs are uncomfortable. They take a long time. They're very expensive and they have access problems. Not to mention that they use gadolinium, which is a heavy metal and it builds up in the body. It's very dangerous over time. And so he's supposed to solve the MRI problem and he does, and he does it too well because he comes up with a test that can screen for breast cancer quickly, painlessly, comfortably, no radiation. And it has 40 times the resolution of MRI. Mm. And so while it was not intended to replace mammogram, it's certainly poised to do that. Mm. And so I think the world is changing. I think the change is going to come on behalf of the women that demand it. We're not going to trust that our doctors have our best interests at heart. And I am not insulting doctors. I think that they are doing the very best that they can. I think they're doing their jobs. And for 20, nearly 20 years, I did my job and I thought I was doing a really great job. And during that time that I did a really great job, I wrote for thousands of mammograms, Mm. thousands. Okay. So they are doing exactly what they are taught to do and doing it well and with great pride and great conscience because they don't know. Mm. They don't know. Hey, I want to pause from today's episode and talk about an immune system molecule that has certainly changed my life, but is making a lot of waves out in the world. And strong immunity is my passion. And I truly believe that every single person needs to be using this molecule. It activates your natural killer cells 
It makes your immune system 437% smarter. It kills cancer cells. And its main job is to help your body recognize a threat and then respond to it. Now, one of the great things about this molecule is if your body doesn't recognize where the problem is, it can't certainly fight it. So it's like this molecule points out where the problem is so it can effectively fight it. So if you are interested in what this molecule could do for you, go ahead and message me at hello at ericamatthews.co. All right, let's get back into today's episode. That's what I was going to ask you. Like everything that they tell their patients that is the cutting, burning, poisoning model, they're just taught that way, right? They're, they're, they're that's taught. What they learn in school. Yeah. 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 It's exactly what I learned in school. Wow. And I think it's so hard. First of all, if you try to think outside of the box while operating, no pun intended, within that, within that system, that conventional medical system, you're really up against it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not acceptable. Like for me, for my purposes, when I learned about all of this, I really tried to incorporate it into my surgical practice, right? Like I wanted to talk to people about how they should eat and how they should think and how they should move and spirituality and connection and all the things that we know are super duper important. And I got called into my chairman's office. What are you doing? Well, you don't pay for you to talk to people. You pay for you to operate. Oh. Right? Like you have to remember that this is a business. It's the business of medicine. And their best interests are not to make people healthier. I mean, I have an awful, awful story. I probably shouldn't share it. But at one point, I was asked to be the first chair of integrative oncology in the country. And I went and met with the chief medical officer of the hospital in preparation for accepting this position because I was super excited and I thought I was really going to change the cancer program and help help so many people. And I said, what are we going to do about the cafeteria? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I can't have people operated on for cancer and like wake up the next morning and have bacon, eggs, and sausage. Like, I can't do that. He's like, well, the cafeteria is off the table. I said, why? He said, well, our hospital grading system, the Price-Gurney scores, part of that score is based on the food and how it tastes. And if we make the food healthy, people don't like how it tastes, they give us a lower score. And that's how we're reimbursed based on this score. I'm like, okay, let's put that aside. We have a captive audience. We have an opportunity. These people just had a heart attack. They just had a cancer operation. Like, This is the time where we can reach them. We can help them. We can teach them. We can prevent this from happening again. He said, but we don't want to prevent it from happening again. I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, we get paid on how many cardiac procedures we do. Why would we want to do less procedures and make less money? And I said, oh, yeah, I get it. Mm. We do not have the same goal. Mm. and I said goodbye and walked out of the office and that was it Mm. because we don't have the same goal yeah and you can't you can't make progress you can't partner with someone that doesn't have the same goal and for right now the doctors and the hospitals are not our partners Mm -mm. because they're not about creating health they don't really want it Mm -mm. they may in their hearts Mm -hmm. want it. They may want to provide people with compassionate care. And I really believe that they do. Mm -hmm. I really believe that they do. But ultimately the hospitals and physicians in this current system cannot survive if people are healthy. 100%. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, it was on, it was everywhere, but not on both of my ovaries. And my doctor, he was conventional uh, in the beginning. He told me, well, let's just take everything. So they did a full abdominal hysterectomy. And I said, well, the cancer is not on both of the ovaries and the my cervix and all that. And he said, well, it's probably going to metastasize there. So let's just take everything. And 
that was that. And so what did I do? I was completely in that place of fear, move, 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 quick, quick, quick. And I did yeah. it. It was like, I was, yes, whatever you say, doctor, mm-hmm. until I almost lost my life in the hospital. Twice it happened. And that's when I just began to say, I don't think that this Western medicine, this was four years ago, is really going to be able to help my situation. And that's when I went on my own journey and here mm-hmm. I am today. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, so wow. Yeah. So the thing is, they are taught to check boxes. Mm-hmm. It, it's really sad, but it's really true. This, if X, then Y, right? And they don't think outside of that. And they get in trouble if they do, right? We think about all of these like chemotherapy protocols and they have to check all the boxes and do all these things. And, you know, you have to pre-medicate with this and post-medicate with this. And the reason that they do all of that is because if they don't do all of that, the insurance companies won't pay them Mm. for the treatment, but it has nothing to do with the outcome of the patient. So it would be so amazing if we actually tied these things to outcome. Because if we tie them to outcome, we would think a lot more about the person that's sitting in front of us than the piece of paper that's on our desk. Yes, yes. But it's not the way it works now. I pray it changes. Mm -hmm. I pray it changes. But for right now, for as long as we have this medical system where it's working for the hospitals, it's working for the insurers, like that's what we're slaves to. If we went back to insurance being for catastrophes, if you break your leg or, you know, if we went back to insurance being for emergencies Mm -hmm. and not everyone's health plan, it would be a different story. Mm -hmm. If we were rewarded for health, Mm -hmm. it would be a different story. We don't, we don't reward anything for health. Mm-hmm. And so this is how the system is. Mm-hmm. I am super hopeful that it's going to change. I am super hopeful that people like me and the loud voices out there just get louder mm-hmm. and people like you demand change. Mm-hmm. Yes. That this is not acceptable and I'm not doing it. Yes. That's the whole reason I started my podcast is I wanted it to be a platform where I interview people who have like woke up and said, oh no, this is not true health. I am not probably going to survive this and forge their own way. And so I interview all kinds of people who have done that. And I almost want to call you a whistleblower. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Keep blowing, blowing. Yeah. Well, I definitely am a thorn in the side of the medical imaging world. And it's okay. I mean, because I know that I'm coming out on the right side of history. Right. And I will get tons of messages that say, but the mammogram found my cancer and a mammogram saved my life. And the and the system really wants you to believe that. Yeah. It really does. And all I can say is, thank God your life was saved. Yeah. I'm not at all convinced that it was the mammogram, but for my purposes, like the why doesn't matter, your life was saved. Great. Mm -hmm. But mammogram is not saving women's lives. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And that's why I'm making sure that as many women as possible know about QT imaging. And I am going to open imaging centers all across this country Mm. so that women can safely, comfortably, and reliably screen for breast cancer. If you choose to screen, Mm -hmm. the flip side of it is you don't have to screen. Mm -hmm. You don't have to. I mean, we know that the women that just do self-breast examination do just as well as the women who go and have screening examinations. I understand and respect the person that wants to feel involved, wants to be proactive. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm so excited to have this QT imaging because I know that I'm not putting them in any harm's way. Mm -hmm. And I have the ability to, this is a functional test, which means that if we see something on this test, you can come back in two months, we can rescan you and look at a doubling time. And we know that things that have doubling times less than 100 days 
are meaningful and things that have doubling times greater than 100 days are not meaningful. So we don't have to do unnecessary biopsies and we don't have to put women on this hamster wheel of worry, Mm -hmm. right? Again and again and again, more imaging, more imaging, more imaging, more biopsies, more biopsies. And it's just, it's a bell that once you ring, you can't unring it. And we're just not doing the right thing for people. And I am, I'm going to change that. I'm on a mission to change that. Yes. Amazing. What are your thoughts on biopsies spreading cancer? So I actually don't think that the data is there in support of that. Just from my own personal experience, because everyone who has a breast cancer diagnosis gets a biopsy, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking strictly about breast cancer right now. I'm going to address other cancers later. But in the breast cancer world, it is very predictable how many women will die of breast cancer each year. So if biopsying the breast cancer was really meaningful in terms of changing the biologic behavior of the tumor or seeding the tumor or anything like that, we would expect more people to have this kind of metastatic conversion, but we just don't see it. We don't see it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that for most women, when they undergo biopsy, is there some transfer of cells outside of the tumor to the surrounding tissues? Maybe, maybe, but I think that the immune system, when it's just a couple of cells, is able to really take care of that. And we do see that worn out in that if you have surgery within a couple of weeks of your biopsy, we will see some studying in neighboring tissues. And then the further you get out, the less likely it is to see any stray cells, if you will. And that's true of the lymph nodes too. The closer to the biopsy you have your surgery, the more likely it is to see tumor cells in the lymph nodes and the further out, the less likely it is. So I don't think in terms of breast cancer, you're really putting yourself in harm's way necessarily by doing a biopsy. The biopsy results are not going to that strongly influence what I do because from my perspective, like it is a ridiculous concept to assume that everyone who ha- whose tumor looks similar under the microscope needs the same treatment, mm. right? Like everyone arrived at that place differently. And because your tumor looks similar under the microscope, we're going to treat you all the same. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Which is why the, the response rates to most chemotherapeutic drugs are abysmal. Mm-hmm. Like, a new drug will get approved if eight or 10 or 13% have a response. Well, that's terrible Mm. to to undergo the side effects and endure the side effects of these totally toxic drugs because 13% of people responded to it. But the reason that you're only seeing this is because just because it looks similar under a microscope doesn't mean the disease is the same. Doesn't mean the drivers are the same. Mm-hmm. So I have really kind of transferred my focus to the liquid biopsies, see what's circulating in your body, because that's what you really need to focus on anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm using them to make individual treatment plans, but the treatment plans are way more comprehensive in that you have to get your diet right. We have to get your movement right. We have to get your sleep right. We have to eliminate the toxins in your body. We have to get some detoxification going. We have to find healthy ways to manage stress because, you know, the alcohol and the pot and the drugs and the constant worry and the sleep disruption, like that's not how to manage stress. And to, you know, help people to ensure that they are hearing the message, that they are living their purpose. Because we are all put here by God for a purpose, mm-hmm. every single one of us. And my purpose isn't your purpose and your purpose isn't my purpose. And God doesn't expect you to be me or me to be you, mm-hmm. right? We all have our unique purpose and we need to make sure that we're true to that. Mm-hmm. And because when we're not, and when we're not living in integrity and when we're not living in the way that we're supposed to be living, that's where these messages come from. 
And this isn't about blame or shame or what you did because no one, no one, even people that smoke, they don't smoke with the intention of getting lung cancer. No one deserves cancer and no one did anything to intentionally for it to happen. So mm. this should never be about blame or shame. What did I do? Yeah. Right? You didn't do anything intentionally. You didn't do anything. At the same time, things happen. And we have the opportunity to look at those things. You know, is my gut healthy? Is my mouth healthy? Is my environment healthy? Is my relationship healthy? We have to ask these questions. And sometimes they're really hard questions. You know, I remember my friend, Susan, we talked about how did she get over her breast cancer? She said, I had a husbandectomy. And I'm not advocating for divorce, but there are just some times when that relationship is not negotiable. And if you're in a non-negotiable relationship and your health is suffering, gotta get out. Oh, 100%. I I had a client in a, a situation like that with an abusive husband and he was, you know, he provided for her in great, great ways. And so she stayed with him, but it's her health has not gotten any better. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, this is happening more times than we know. Yep more times than we know. And it's terrible. It's a shame, but truly, you know, the body is keeping score. It is keeping score. And you cannot abuse your body and your mind over and over and over again. And it's not you doing it and you're not, it's not an intentional thing, but you just cannot endure trauma over and over and over again without it showing itself, without it manifesting in some way. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So what do you think about, it seems like everyone is getting a cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Like it is out of control. I'm like, what is that about? Do you think? We're living in a very toxic world. I mean, we are just literally swimming in a sea of toxins mm-hmm. and we all have an innate ability to tolerate toxins, right? Our allopathic load, what we're able to tolerate. And everyone's bucket is overflowing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what happens is when we reach our maximum toxicity and we start to endure cellular damage, our bodies are really resilient. Like we have a lot of built-in ways to repair ourselves, but that's the immune system right? Mm -hmm. That's the immune system that is serving the body and saying like, are you okay? Are you okay? You're not okay. You need to be fixed. You just need to go. But this only happens in two states. First of all, it only happens when you sleep. You got to sleep at night. If you're not sleeping, you're not healing. So, you know, unfortunately people who do shift, you know, people ask me all the time, well, I do shift work. What am I supposed to do? And I say, don't do shift work. Yeah. Like there's just no path to health when you're not sleeping, when the sun is sleeping, because we are beings that are tied to circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And if you are trying to sleep during the day and be up all night, you are fighting nature. Mm -hmm. You can't fight mother nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, I learned that when I was like three. (laughs) So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that our immune systems are tanked. Mm-hmm. They're tanked. We are in sympathetic state, that state of fight or flight, way more than we're supposed to be. Our bodies, we are modern beings living on a very, very, very old gene code. We only know two states. We know fight and flight, and we know safety, mm-hmm. right? That's the only thing we know. We know fear and we know safety. So when we are in that sympathetic state, that fight or flight state, our dominant hormone is cortisol, right? Mm -hmm. That's our stress hormone. And we do this when we need to run away from a saber-toothed tiger. But when we come out of the cave in the morning and we encounter a saber-toothed tiger, we either run like hell and get away or we get eaten. But what we don't do is run like hell for three hours or three days or three months or three years. It doesn't happen. 
right? We don't do that. Yet our modern day life is filled with saber-toothed tigers. They're everywhere. There are cell phones. There are schedules. There are difficult relationships. There are jobs. There are deadlines. They're everywhere. And so we, when we're surrounded by saber-toothed tigers all the time, and our dominant hormone is cortisol, like if you have a tiger on your tail, what do you need to worry about dying of the common cold? You don't, right? So your immune system gets shut off so that you can shunt what you need to all the other systems. So blood to your muscles and that kind of thing. But meanwhile, you're sitting in a chair trying to meet a deadline. You're not running away. So you're not burning off that cortisol. Your muscles are flooded with glucose. They don't need it. So now your blood sugar is too high. And meanwhile, your immune system went to sleep because it said, I don't need to worry about anything. You've got a tiger on your tail. Let me see if you live or not, right? And we never get to reactivate that immune system because we have to be in parasympathetic tone 95% of the time. Mm. And we're not, we're not. So we all need to do a better job of managing this environment. Mm-hmm. And that means like getting away from your devices, getting off other people's agendas. When people tell me that, Instagram is their self-care, Facebook is their self-care, you know, they love scrolling or whatever, whatever. You have to remember when you're on any of those platforms, you are not on your agenda. You are on someone else's very carefully crafted agenda. Yep. You are sucked down their rabbit hole. That is not self-care. Yeah. That is not self-care. So I know I went on a huge tangent, but the bottom line is that Cancer is a big problem because we're surrounded by big problems and we are internalizing all of these big problems. And what we need to do is say, thank you for sharing, but no, thank you. No, thank you to the herbicides, to the pesticides, to the fungicides, to the plastic. No, no, thank you to the awful relationships, to the no, thank you to being overscheduled and overrun. No, thankful to no, thank you to sleep deprivation. Like just no, thank you, because this is my world and this is what is important to me. I'm going to prioritize that. I'm going to prioritize me. And if I have a little room left for that, I'll deal with it if I want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like people, it takes almost a wake up call, like a cancer diagnosis it for does. People to value just what you said. Like that's for me, I was go, go, go. Like how much can I fill my day with clients? I'm achieving so much. I, my egos, this, and it was all in the name of success, but according to who, you know, and at what cost? But I think so many people do that. And then once you get that diagnosis, then you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to die. And then you're faced with, you know, mortality and just like, I'm too young. Like I was going to live till I'm 80. Like what? This can't be happening. And then you're forced to make the shift. And so that message right there that you just went off on a tangent about how do we get that out to the masses to where people don't have to wake up before a diet? You know what I'm saying? After a diagnosis. Yeah. I, and I, I would love that to happen. Yeah. Unfortunately, it usually takes a huge event to wake people up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Most people won't stop until they have to. Yep. So are you working with people? Like, talk to me about that. I am. I am. So I work with people one-on-one to help them to get to the root of why they got sick and help them to restore their wellness. I also have a bunch of health coaches that help people to put all of those drivers of health in place. And I have a podcast every week called Keeping Abreast with Dr. Jen. So people can tune in to hear that wisdom. If you think it's wisdom, I'm, who knows? I wrote a book called The Smart Person's Guide to Breast Cancer. And this is for anyone anywhere along the breast cancer journey who wants to take back the control that they lost mm. with their diagnosis. But more importantly, I wrote it from a perspective of a surgeon who ran a cancer program because I know 
the conversations that these people are having. And I know the questions that they're asking and I know what they want answers to. And so it's really a guide to navigating this whole system. And at the same time, providing for all the things that actually drive health, because we know that health doesn't happen in an operating room suite and it doesn't happen in a chemotherapy suite or a radiation center. Health happens at home. Yep. And the only person that can make you healthy is you. Yes. And so while I work with people and while my health coaches help people and my podcast helps people and my Facebook group helps people and my book helps people, the only person that can help you is you. Hmm. And the only place that health is going to happen is at home. Mm -hmm. I can't cook for you. I can't think for you. I can't move for you. I can't sleep for you. These are the things that you need to do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm trying to be out there doing the good work and, and helping the people that want to restore their health and take back control of their lives. Mm -hmm. So good. Well, so where can people find you on Instagram? Yeah. So on Instagram, Facebook, I'm probably on Twitter, but I don't really follow <laughs> that stuff too much. I don't even think it's called Twitter anymore. I think it's called X now or something like that. I don't know. I'm Dr. Jen Simmons and my Jen has two ends. My practice is called Real Health MD. You see that right above my head here. My podcast is called Keeping Abreast with Dr. Jen, and you can get that anywhere you get your podcasts. My Facebook group is called Keeping Abreast with Dr. Jen, and you can just search that up on Facebook. And then my book is The Smart Person's Guide to Breast Cancer. That is a downloadable book for anyone who needs it right now. Yes. And then my next book, The Smart Woman's Guide to Breast Cancer, will be out in two months. Oh, yay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Super exciting. So exciting. Yeah. Well, I've loved our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I know so Thank many people are going to be encouraged by this. Great. Yeah. Yes. Great. And if I have any parting words, it's please don't get a mammogram. You don't need one. It's not yeah. saving your life. And there will be a QT imaging center, a perfection imaging center coming to a town soon near you. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. My prayer is that the podcast encouraged you and filled you with hope. If you loved what you heard today and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post it on social media, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To catch the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Erica Matthews and join my Hope and Healing for Cancer Facebook group. Remember this, anything worth having takes work. See you next week for a new episode.